I'm starting a new series today, and I'm going to forego a long introduction. The series is called God Touched, and it is on the supernatural life of the prophet Elisha. I'm sure you know Elijah. Most people are familiar with Elijah. This was his understudy. This was his successor as a prophet of Israel. His name was Elisha. And during the next several Sundays, probably leading all the way up until right before Thanksgiving, we're going to immerse ourselves in the life of Elisha because I want to, again, break down barriers that say what happened then doesn't happen anymore. Because I, I know that there is this default mindset in so many hearts that what God used to do, he doesn't do anymore. And I have an issue with that because the Bible never says that. The Bible never declares that the way God once worked, he no longer works. That is a human teaching. And we never, we rarely, let me say it that way, we rarely rise above the level of what we're taught. We believe what we're taught and we usually won't rise above that. And so if we're not taught properly, we live beneath what God has for all of us. The, the life of Elisha is a life that motivates and inspires because he's an average guy when he begins. And we're going to talk about his beginning today. But by the time his life, and we come to the chapters of his death, he has led a life that had such an anointing, such a touch from God on it. And yet you never see him doing anything more than asking, trusting, abiding, and believing. He doesn't have to work it up. He doesn't have to go to some super, you know, a charged moment over and over and over again. He abides in what he has. And I'm going to tell you something. You actually have the advantage over Elisha. You know why? Because the God that he prayed to actually lives inside of you. And so when we look at his life, it'll start off this morning as he kind of just comes upon the pages of Scripture from out of nowhere. Um, in 2 Kings chapter, excuse me, 1 Kings Forgive me if I said 2 Kings. 1 Kings chapter number 19. Today I want to talk to you about the anatomy of a call. What does it mean to be called? Elisha's story begins with his calling. And there are, there are men and women in this room right now. Not all of them teenagers. Men and women in this room right now that there is a call upon your life. Not just the general call to serve. There's a calling that means the Lord has said, I'm going to call you out of quote-unquote normal living. I'm going to call you into a level of service and fellowship that is going to change everything about your life. You're here this morning. I don't know who you are, but I know there are some here this morning. And my prayer today is that God will impart faith to answer the call like Elisha did. In 1 Kings chapter number 19, verse number 19. Speaking of Elijah, it says he departed from there and found Elisha, the son of Shaphat, who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him, and he was with the 12th. Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak or his mantle upon him, and he left the oxen, ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and my mother and then I will follow you. And Elijah said to him, Go back again, for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen. And he gave it to the people and they ate. Then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. 
Maybe it's ironic that I'm going to be sharing a series with you called, that's subtitled The Supernatural Life of the Prophet Elisha because what we just read, it seems altogether absent of anything supernatural. It just seems like a, a historical narrative, a blurb, if you will. And yet what makes this moment in Scripture so important is because it is the threshold that the Lord takes us across to enter into what he does with the life of Elisha, a life that ought to inspire every single one of us to press into the Lord for greater than we've ever seen. And so let's begin there this morning and let's see that if in the midst of a rather routine chunk of verses that the Lord might choose to deposit something supernatural today, maybe a calling Maybe a solidification of the heart where somebody's been praying through and unto something and then all of a sudden it crystallizes, it galvanizes. The Holy Spirit takes a dozen, two dozen, three dozen pre, uh, previous prayers and he brings them to a, a crystallized moment where a yes and an amen is put upon everything you've been praying. Let's just see what the Lord does today. We're going to start with this. As in any calling, this is the way it most often works, God marks an unknown believer. Matter of fact, it's in 1 Kings 19, verse 16, a verse I didn't read that I'm going to read now. God is calling Elijah to end his ministry, and he speaks to him about this one named Elisha. He says, I want you to go and anoint Elisha, the son of Shaphat of Abel-Meholah. You shall anoint him to become the prophet in your place. Now, very quickly on Elijah's life, Elijah was the man Elijah had a ministry that was full of thunder, full of fire, full of power. Elijah made his name known by walking into the palace of Ahab and Jezebel, marched up to them, declared judgment upon them, judgment on the land, and then lived out the rest of his years as a fugitive from that one act of obedience to the Lord. There was a bounty put on his head because Elijah had the audacity to preach the word of God unfiltered to an evil king and an evil queen. And so Elijah also had that event on the top of Mount Carmel where all of the false prophets in the land, 800 of them gathered, and they were calling on Baal. They were calling on their God to send down fire. And Elijah had said, if your God sends fire, all of Israel should worship your God. But if my God sends fire, then all of Israel will worship my God. And so the fire did not fall for the false prophets. And that's a great read, by the way, if you haven't read that before. You need to find that passage and read because Elijah not only did it. He did it with some swag. He, he, was, he was literally mocking the false prophets as they danced around, cutting themselves, begging their God to show fire, and he never did because that God didn't exist except in the wicked hearts of those worshipers. But when Elijah simply threw the wood out and he said, now let the fire fall, boom, the fire of God fell. And, the, and on the back end of that, all of those false prophets were slaughtered for breaking the law of God. Elijah had a great name, but Elijah not unlike many great men and women of God, Elijah loved the high highs, but he seemed to fall from them often and crash into fits of despondency and depression. He found himself wanting to die. He found himself wanting to quit. And then right before we read the verses we read this morning, Elijah was on the downswing, and he was saying, God, I'm the only one left in the land that's faithful to you. And God got real with Elijah, and he said, uh, you're wrong. I've got 7,000 of them that worship me. You're not the only one. And by the way, I'm going to have you go anoint one of those 7,000 because he's going to be the prophet because you're done. 
Now, it doesn't mean that God judged Elijah. It just meant Elijah had finished his course as the prophet, and God had this unknown guy named Elisha. Listen, he was a redneck. He was a blue-collar farmhand. He was a roughneck. Let me say it that way. That's probably more politically correct. But he was a guy that worked the fields. He wasn't a priest. He wasn't in the school of the prophets. He was a guy that worked the fields. And God said, that's going to be the one that I'm going to raise up. And for the next several decades, what I say is going to come through his mouth. And what I do is going to come through his hands. You see, friends, we live in a star-struck culture. We're enamored with that, that which is impressive, beauty. Everything's got to have a shine on it. Letters behind the names to qualify you as supremely educated, supremely pedigreed, supremely fit for what is to come. And even in the church, there is this spirit of infatuation with that which seems overly sensationalized. And yet when God wants to do a great work, let me tell you one principle you'll find all throughout Scripture. He is absolutely not interested in sharing the glory with anybody. So what does he, what does he do? Well, Paul tells us, he says he doesn't call many that are noble. He doesn't call many that are wise. He doesn't call many that are strong. He does not call, in summary, those that are impressive. God looks where other people don't look, usually in the rubble heap or in the ash pile, and God says, I think that will work perfectly. Come here, boy. Come here, girl. I'm going to do something with you. In essence, that's what he did with Elisha. By the way, Elisha's name means my God saves, and we're going to find out in this series that his life was just supernatural, his life, his ministry, and as Elijah had a ministry of warning and judgment, Elisha's is very different. His is of deliverance and rescue and a whole lot of compassion and mercy. So let's get down into the verses that we just read a few moments ago. When God's going to choose somebody, I've already said that he often chooses an unknown believer, but he also usually chooses a busy believer. Look in verse number 19 at the beginning of it. Three things that Elisha had as that calling found him. First of all, Elisha had a family. He's he's given no other description at this point other than Elisha, Elisha, who is the son of a man named Shaphat. And so we find out right away that consistent with uh, the way things worked in that time, Elisha is grown. We don't know exactly how old. We picture him as a younger man, maybe late teens to early 30s, somewhere in that realm. But he's still living on the farm. His father was a farmer. His father had land. They were agrarian culture. They worked the land. They grew crops. They ate off crops. They may have sold crops. But Elisha was not in the school of the prophets. Elisha was not a theologian that we can tell. Elisha was a guy that understood hard work was was beneficial. And so he had spent years serving his father on his father's farm, driving what would have been a fairly large group of, of plow beasts, oxen in this case. And there were 11 yoke. And then Elisha had the 12th yoke. So 12 times 2, 24. 24 beasts plowing a large field, and Elisha was at the back. So he's sucking in every day the dust of 11 uh, groups of oxen going before him. He's working in the heat. He's tilling up the dirt. Nothing sensational about it. And yet every day he went home, and his work was a reflection on the honor that he had for his father. So he knew how to honor his family. He was a man that was still living in his parents' place and still having his life attached to them. Elisha not only had a family, I've already uh, spoken on this, Elisha had a field. The Bible says he was the son of Shaphat, and when the calling came, what was he doing? He was plowing, he was working. He was doing the mundane. 
He was taking care of his have-tos in life. He was going about it, same thing he did the day before and the day before that. Oh, and the, the month before that and the year before that. Well, Elisha, what'd you do this week? Well, I did the same thing I always do. I plowed. And when he wasn't plowing, he was planting. When he wasn't planting, he was tending. And wasn't tending, he was harvesting. And it was the same cycle all the time. But he knew how to work. He had a work ethic. He wasn't lazy. He wasn't looking for a way to get out of the hard stuff. He was a guy that is pictured in Scripture as not only uh, uh, having a father, but serving a father and taking care of the field. So he was in the middle of what he was doing in life. He had probably already decided, I'm a farmer, I'm always going to be a farmer. That's just what my family does. And yet God had other plans. Um, how many of you have recognized that God reserves the right to turn your plans upside down? Yeah? Yeah, and, and we actually aren't supposed to get offended with him when he does that. But because his plans are always sourced in his love. And his plans, whether we sense it or understand it, or can communicate it, his plans are actually always better than ours if they happen to differ. Always better. And Elisha was about to find out that his plowing days were over. Well, follow me with it. He had a family, he had a field, and he had a future. Look there, it says that he had 12 yoke of oxen in front of him. He was riding or standing, walking behind that, that very last plow. Again, Lots of land, lots of teams of oxen. It speaks of more than just a family field trying to earn enough uh, or to source enough food to get by. It literally speaks of an enterprise, a growing business. He would have been next in line to take over daddy's business. And so if he had continued in this, it's not like he would have been destitute. It's not like he wouldn't have had uh, plenty of work to do. It's not like he couldn't have raised his family and probably had a decent living. He had a future in the farming business. And yet again, he was going to exchange any of that that might have been a personal dream for some eternal promises that God was about to bring to him. Now, I'm going to move on to this second chunk of verses here, but, but let me just kind of bring this to you where you are. All of us are busy with something. Most of us, whether we are consciously aware of it or not, we are engaging in a life, a pattern of life that involves pleasure. Most people do what they want to do that brings them the most pleasure as often as they can do it. Hopefully for Christians, that means it's lawful pleasure. God is not anti-pleasure. God is pro-pleasure, but it needs to be lawful pleasure within his guidelines. But most of us try to situate and steer our lives towards that which pleases us most deeply. And then in the midst of that, we have to do certain things. The majority of the people in the room here today, most of your life, if we're being honest, is assigned to you. You have certain obligations, certain duties. There are a lot of things you must say yes to because you don't have a choice. There are very few things in life sometimes where we, we actually get a yay or a nay vote. Most of it, in certain seasons of life, we've just got to do it. And so we enter into that, and that becomes a pattern, and those weeks and months become years, and those years start telling the story of our lives. But one of the things that the Lord wants to do is he, he, he occasionally wants to just interrupt that normal flow he wants to speak into that. He wants to interject himself in the middle of all of your have-tos to get you an appetite for what I call might-bees. In all of your have-tos, sometimes we lose our, our hope for the might-bees. And when that mundane and that routine and all of those have-tos finds us, 
If you're not careful, you can assume that God is done um, renavigating your plan. You can assume that any, any change, any overhaul, any improvement, any upgrade is probably in yesteryear. And if you're not careful, you can assume you can start living with the this is as good as it's going to get mindset. And frankly, that just goes against everything that's in me. I just, I want to go out at the top of my game. I don't know about you, but if this is as good as it gets, I don't want to do tomorrow. I just believe that God is always, if we're pressing into him and we're hearing from him and we're following him and we're journeying with him and we're intimate with him, how could this be as good as it gets? Because if we're doing all that, that means tomorrow is more of it and that's better. And so we're pressing into him. But sometimes he just likes to say, I know you're focused on all of this, the same old, the same old. And what you don't know is I put my mark on you. And my child, I'm coming after you because we're about to do a right angle maneuver right here. We're about to go in a brand new direction. And here it comes for our friend Elisha. Here, he has chosen a busy believer who was an unknown believer. But now watch this. God is about to enlist a willing believer. This is important when it comes to a calling on somebody's life. First of all, look at his opportunity. Verse number 19. As he's plowing behind 11, 12 yoke of oxen, Elijah passed him by and casts his cloak upon him. I like the King James. It calls it the mantle of Elijah. That just sounds more charismatic, I guess. I don't know, but it just sounds better. But here's the scene. Elisha's just sucking in dust. He's out there in a the field. He's doing what he's always been doing. He probably doesn't even hear Elijah coming by. And Elijah's an old dude by this point. And Elijah just walks up to him, doesn't say a word, not at the beginning. And he throws his mantle, his cloak. That's a picture of Elijah saying, in essence, what God has laid upon me, Elisha, I now lay upon you. It is what we, it's sim, uh, similar to the passing of the torch. And he, so he takes that mantle and he puts it on Elisha and doesn't say a word to him. He just keeps on trucking. Now, you'd like to think that Elijah would make it a little bit more personal, but he's a crotchety old fella at this point. I mean, he's not at the top of his game anymore. I mean, he's literally having to appoint his successor. And the Bible tells us Elijah is a man with like passions just like us. And so that means he can have high highs and low lows. And I don't know that anybody, you know, says, oh, good, my time is done. I get to replace myself with this guy. But how did he do it? He takes that mantle. He obeyed. He takes that mantle and he lays it upon Elisha. Now, friends, right there, follow me. Elisha understands the context of this. Everybody in Israel knows who Elijah is. He's the renegade prophet who got in the face of the king and queen. He's lived for decades with a bounty on his head. He rained down and called down fire from heaven and burned up all the false prophets. You don't mess with Elijah. And here's Elisha just doing his job. And now all of a sudden, the man, the prophet, the anointed one comes and puts his mantle on him and keeps on trucking. So Jeff, how do you know he kept on trucking? Well, look at the next, next verse. Elisha, not only his opportunity, but his priority. Elisha left the oxen and ran after Elijah. So Elijah keeps moving. Now, here it is. Watch this. It's in a microcosm. 
I'm, I'm a suburbanite. I've lived in the suburbs almost my entire life. You don't want me on your farm unless I'm buying something. You don't want me near your tools, your plows, your farming equipment. I will lose a limb. I promise you that. You don't want me anywhere near it. But, but I do know this. If you've got a yoke of oxen and you are plowing a furrow and you leave them, that thing's going to zig, it's going to zag. You may never get those oxen. It's going to mess everything up. So here's Elisha. He now has this mantle that has been laid upon him. He's got his hand on the plow. Elijah's running off in that direction. Elisha's got a job to do, but now he's sensing a call on his life, and he's got to make a decision. And the Bible says he let go of the oxen and pursued his destiny. Why is that important? Because that's the crux of every calling, and some of you may be there right now. Because in that, in that moment, in that capsulized moment, he knows that he's got responsibilities in the field, responsibilities to his family, responsibilities. He's got a name. That he, other people are depending on him. He's not the only one on the team, the 11 people ahead of him, the people that are coming behind him. He's got all of this horizontal have to. And yet in that moment, he senses the might be. And he makes the great decision. He's showing himself as a willing man who wants to pursue spiritual priorities. Now follow me because it keeps on going. Look in verse number 20. He catches up to Elijah. Maybe there was more said. We're not sure. But this is the only thing recorded. Elisha is going to speak for the first time. And the first thing that comes out of his mouth are words of integrity. He says, let me first kiss my mother and my father and I will follow you. He's not asking now, Elijah, I notice you've laid your mantle upon me. I feel honored. Thank you. Um, I do have a job making a pretty decent living. Papa says he's going to give me the business. So before I agree to, to step into this um, understudy role, can you tell me exactly what I can expect? What's going to come my way? Is there anything? We, he didn't do what a lot of us do, trying to negotiate with a calling. He, he didn't do that. The only thing he did is he expressed his integrity saying, I want to honor my mother and my father, which is in the law. I want to say goodbye to them. I'm not saying, hold on so I can make up my mind. I'm saying, I've made up my mind. I'm going to follow you. Let me tell my mother and father goodbye. And so he goes and he honors them. Uh, I love the fact that Elisha has this awesome balance. I, I've not raised older children yet. I've got a 17-year-old and a 12-year-old. But I do know that the time is coming where, as a parent, you pour everything you can into your children, but at some point, the birds have to leave the nest. And I'm not just talking about physically. I'm talking about they have to start making their own decisions. They have to start following their own destiny. They have to start discerning for themselves what the Father is calling them to do. And so there is that... that painful process for a lot of parents where you still want to daddy them or you still want to mama them but at the same time you realize no this is outside of the scope of my relationship with them this is actually between them and God and so as a parent you you come to that place where you've got to let them go by the way I recommend doing it incrementally so you don't have to do it all at once at the end where it'll agonize your soul but you, you're giving them up what, what these parents did today in dedicating their babies it's the beginning of a letting go process they're literally saying, we, we acknowledge that these babies really aren't ours. We, we will raise them. They're our responsibility. We will steward them. But we're actually raising them unto the Father. And then the Father will take them as adults and do what he pleases. And so Elisha has this need to leave his family. So he doesn't pull the, hey, Dad, you're going to have to figure out what to do in the field. Because, you know, I mean, I'm wearing the mantle now. 
I got a call of God on my life. And I'm sorry they zigged and they zagged for, you know, 12 acres today. But, you know, uh, I'm with Elijah now. He, he doesn't pull this pompous kind of strutting kind of thing. He, he, he expresses a desire in his integrity. I want to honor my mother and my father. Now, we're not told how that played out. But we are told that it was in his heart to do the right thing the right way. And so we, we, we're finding out that there's a lot of substance in Elisha's heart. And then look at what Elijah says. This is big. Look at what he says, because in it we find Elisha's liberty. Elijah says, go back again, for what have I done to you? That's a weird kind of thing. We, a lot of people have different opinions on what that means, because it's not overly encouraging. I mean, it really isn't. I just really don't believe Elijah was super stoked about having to pass his, his mantle on. I really don't think emotionally he was really into it at that point. And so what he's saying is this. He's saying to Elisha, you want to go back and talk to your mom and dad? That's fine. Think it through. Take your time. It's important. Go back again. And then he adds this, for what have I done to you? He's, he's saying this. He's saying, hey, Elisha, it's not me calling you. It's a call of God on your life. You're not going to be disappointing me if you don't go. It's not me calling you. I'm just obeying and I'm placing the call out there. Let me tell you, that, this is why I made the statement just a little bit earlier on that there's people in, in the congregation and people that are listening on live stream and will watch it later in some other media stream. That there, there's, it's, just, it's not even prophetic. It's just statistical. God's not stopped calling people. He's never stopped, and he's not stopped radically calling people. In one sense, it is true that we are all ministers, male, female, younger, old, newly saved or saved for eons. We are all ministers of the gospel. We are all servants. We all wear that calling. But within that broader calling is a very unique and specific calling that God places upon a person, usually from the inside out. It's usually something that's already within them, and the Lord just touches it with a call, and it comes out. What is it? It means that they forsake the normal mode of living. It means they enter into an elevated life of faith and dependence and trust. It means that they announce and put themselves out there humbly that the Lord has called me to do this. I'm not going to be what I've been. I'm not going to do what I've done. But now I am saying goodbye to my plow. I'm saying goodbye to my field. If necessary, I'm saying goodbye to my family. And I'm saying I'm stepping into the calling which is not even yet specifically defined. That's what makes it tough. Because it's just like Abraham. I mean, Abraham, go to a city that I'll show you. Which way, Lord? Just go. What? <laughs> you, everybody wants to know, what, what city? I'll go there. Tell me the city. And the Lord said, you know, you're thinking destination. I'm thinking journey. And that's the way it is with the calling. We, and, and parents, listen to this. I really sense young people are getting stirred right now in this season at our church. And there's, there's a calling. There's a mission. But some of them are getting gummed up in the what mom and dad are going to think. I, I'm telling you, parents, listen, it's important that we... we, we we honor the Lord's work in our young people and our students and our children. We have to honor the fact that he is ultimately their authority. Yes, they're under our authority. And if they've displayed character and if they've displayed a bend towards all things God, then we have to leave room for the reality that he may very well indeed put a specific calling on their life at some point. And when he does, we're actually not supposed to get in the way of it. We're not supposed to talk him out of it. We're not supposed to say, well, that sounds really stupid. 
what is he calling you unto? Until you can tell me what he's calling you unto, uh, I don't support you. Well, let me just tell you, Elisha didn't know. Abraham didn't know. All Paul knew is that he was going to get in a lot of trouble when he, announced, when he accepted the call of the Lord on him. A lot of persecution, a lot of problems, a lot of struggles. But the ultimate and specific destiny isn't always known. It is embraced. It's experienced as you, as you answer that call. And so Elisha had the liberty to say no. He would have been frustrated, but he could have said no. Didn't mean that God was going to curse the field if he said no. Didn't mean that Elisha couldn't have a decent life if he said no. But he would live with an ache that he was always living outside of the full destiny that God had for him. So it was very important that he said yes. So we get down to the last verse. God empowers a sacrificial believer. Watch this. Watch this. Elisha displayed a wholehearted commitment. The scripture says he returned from following Elijah and he took the yoke of oxen and he sacrificed them and he boiled their flesh with the yokes of the oxen. Now, just pause here for a minute because you're, you're not a Hebrew living in ancient Israel. So Elisha lets it be known to everybody that he really is serious about this. He makes a visible, clear break. What did he do? The two oxen that he had been walking behind that knew his voice. He knew them. They knew him. He knew how to plow a field with those. He wanted to make sure that there was never any potential for him going back to what he used to do. So he takes those two bulls, those two oxen, and he kills them and he cooks them. And he does it with the fire. He used for the wood of the fire the actual components of the yoke that he used to walk behind. So the oxen are gone. You can't unboil an oxen. It's dead. And he cooked it up, and the plow is gone. What does that typify? What is that, what is that a, a picture of? It's a picture of him burning the, the lone bridge that he had to ever go back to the life that he once knew. He is demonstrably saying to his family, his friends, his co-laborers, and to Elijah himself, I am wholeheartedly, 100% going in. You know, let me just say this at the risk of maybe sounding a little more narrow than I usually do. There is a type of answer to a call that says, well, I'll give it a try. I'll, 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 I'll give it a whirl. And if it doesn't work out in a way that pleases my wife or pleases my kids or pleases my parents or pleases me, I can always go back to my oxen. Except Elisha said, I don't ever want to do that because I know there's a mantle on me because I've seen the hand of the Lord because I know what happened in my heart when the call came. And I know that Israel needs a prophet and Elijah has served us well, but Elijah's time, it would have been visible to everybody. Elijah was old by this point. His time was, was drawing to a close. And so Elisha did probably the most important thing he had done in his life up to that point. He entered into his calling with wholehearted commitment. But I love this. It wasn't somber. It wasn't sad. He actually threw a party. Look at it. This will scare the starch out of some of you, but Elisha blessed others in generosity. He cooked the ox, and he gave it to the people, and they ate. By the way, they, the, Israel's recent history had involved a lot of famine. You, you didn't get to eat steak a whole lot. 
or ox, whatever you want to call it. Do we eat ox? We don't eat ox, do we? Let's just make it a Jersey bull. Or if you're a vegan, a big cup of tofu, okay? <laughs> so we, he, he gives it to the people, and they are chowing down. So his calling and his leaving, it's not a funeral, it's a festival. And they're celebrating what's going on in his life. And Elisha says, I don't want this just to be about me. As I'm going out, let me bless you, and let me bless you, and let me bless you, and let me bless you. And so he started out, and the whole thing, even, listen, even his parents ate with him. I just think it's awesome that the call was not something to be dreaded. But even the parents had to get in on the celebration because God was doing something with their son. God was doing something with that when they raised. God was showing himself sovereign over a life that they had been stewarding. But now God says, Mom and Dad, you've done excellently. I'm taking your boy, and I'm taking him further into my purposes now. And Mom and Dad couldn't go along for that part of the journey. Their job at that point was ended. And God's visible job with Elisha was now manifesting to an entire nation of people. So he blessed others. He displayed a wholehearted commitment. And then lastly, this is This is crucial. Elisha embraced the role of a servant because right now this sounds like supercharged. It's like, oh, yeah, man, I can see this, you know, in HD, this is happening. And, and, but look, the Bible says, so Elisha rose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Don't miss it. The first call for Elisha was your job is going to be to take care of Elijah. You're going to serve him. Wait a minute. I got this custom-made mantle on me. I'm ready for a double portion. That would come later. But you don't hear any of that from Elisha. He's told, serve the prophet Elijah. Before he ever got to work his own miracles, before he ever got to raise the dead, before he ever got to work in supernatural words of knowledge that literally changed the trajectory of military battles against the enemy, before he ever spoke abundant provision to impoverished people. He did all of those things, but God said, the first thing that you need to learn how to do is be a servant. Some scholars said that he he was Elijah's servant for upwards of a decade before he stepped into his own calling. Now, young people, I've really, really spoken to those of us that are older about setting you free and and letting you step into the call of God. But I'm going to exhort you strongly here. If you cannot serve, you will never lead. Never. You're unqualified. You're unfit. If, If calling equates in our minds glamour, fame, power, influence, If that's what we hear, and that's all we hear when we're talking about the call of God is upon my life, then we've not heard deeply enough. Because the Lord says this first, I'm going to start you out washing the hands of another. 2 Kings chapter number 3, when Elisha's name starts getting on the national radar, he's described as, oh, that's the guy that washed Elijah's hands. That's what his testimony was. He was a foot washer, a hand washer, a servant, a maid, a cook. He was at best second in command. He was in the shadows. I'm going to tell you, most of us at the onset of a call can say, yeah, I can do that because we're thinking I got to do that to do what I really want to do. And you can do it for a month. Uh, Yeah. Hey, I'm hanging with Elijah. 
Yeah, I'm the guy that washes Elijah's hands. I'm, I'm, I'm going with Elijah. I polish his chariot wheels. I fuel it up. I, I am Elijah's understudy. I'm the assistant Elijah. You know, and so you can do that for a month, and then the month turns into a year. And you're like, your hands are dirty again. What are you doing, man? I used to work a farm, and my hands didn't get that dirty. And, 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 and it's work, and it's duty, and it's unpleasant, and it's not glamorous, and it's not famous, and you don't have your own website, and you don't get invited to the big conferences. And, and all you do is cook and you clean and you walk and you keep quiet and you're learning because Elijah has told you, you just need to watch what I do these next few years because one day your day is going to come. And the more you're watching and not doing, the less confident you are that your day will ever come. But it's a test of your character. It's a test of your endurance. So when I say this, I want to be crystal clear. A call in the kingdom foundationally for every person is a call to servanthood. And if you can't humble yourself and be like Jesus and take upon the form of the servant, then stay in the field with your plow and give it your heart there. So that is where he comes to. He is the assistant. Uh, I was an assistant pastor for five years. And I was young and I stepped on a lot of the landmines that number two guys or number three guys on on a ministry team do. I judged my pastor. I used to watch him, and I remember sitting there just such arrogance, thinking, I wish he'd just sit down and let me preach. I used to think that. That, that was not the way God had wired him. He, 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 was a, he was an amazing shepherd in the sense that he, he loved being with people. He would be with you for everything. He'd hold your hand. He'd pat you on the back. He, he, I mean, he was just, all, he was a, he was just kind of a, an uber-tender guy, always made you feel good about yourself. Preaching wasn't a strong suit. So I used to sit there and judge his entire ministry based on the thing that he wasn't good at. And I always felt like I could do a better job. I remember secretly just saying, I mean, I think I probably even prayed this, Lord, if you'll just move him out of the way, I'll do great things at Meadow Baptist Church. He didn't say this, but now I could just hear the saying, well, Lord saying, well, you're kind of a punk, aren't you, Jeff? Because that's what I was being just being kind of a, a little punk. And what the Lord showed me through about five years, four of them, four of which were very, very difficult, is if I couldn't serve a man that I didn't agree with all the time, then I would never be allowed to exert influence because I saw myself as something other than what God saw me. And God first and foremost says, I want you to know that you can serve. Spotlight ministry, getting up and preaching under lights and, and a camera and all that. It's fun, but it's about one one-hundredth of what ministry is about. So this morning, whether it's local church ministry or it's parachurch ministry, or if it's ministry overseas, or if it's ministry to the neighborhoods, I do believe that God has placed in some of your hearts a deep, irresistible longing and an understanding that you were meant for more in the kingdom than who you are currently being and what you are currently doing. And I will not take anything away because I just believe God is is saturating the church with that right now. I believe God is working callings right now that are going to be crucial and essential in five to ten years. And I do see a generation of John and Joan the Baptists John the Baptist, Joan the Baptist, male, female. If you don't like that, write Dustin an email about it because I'm going to ignore it. I see God raising up men and women 
pouring out his spirit on all flesh, all different strata of society, servants and, 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 and those that might have servants, and that the, the young will, will dream and the old will have visions, and that there will be prophetic utterance coming out of people. And the only thing that is lacking in that happening in some lives is a willingness to not say, I'll wait until I have all the details. That's what's holding back many. Many are saying, I will when God tells me and clarifies all the detail. Let me give you this. I'm trying to get off the train. It's still moving a little quick, but listen. We're begging God for clarity. Oh, Lord, I just need clarity. Lord, give me clarity. Give me clarity. Clarity is overrated. What you actually need is courage. Because you're not always going to have clarity. But when you don't have clarity, if you have courage, you've got what you need. I know people with a lot of clarity who still don't have the courage. Some in this room, I am really sensing this strongly. I'm not the Holy Spirit, but I am sensing him today. Just he won't let me turn loose at this point. Some are demanding details that are never going to come. They only come as you live it out. There is no five-year syllabus for stepping out in faith and doing what God's calling you to do. You say, well, Jeff, what am I answering a call unto? I'll give you this. You're actually answering a call unto him. You're answering the call not to something, but to someone. It is a trust issue. The details are not sovereign. The details are not what you are to draw your confidence from. We are resting in the one who has proven himself faithful. And when he calls you into something, he's going to equip you every single stage of the way. Worship team, will you join me on stage? Because I'm going to wrap this up. I'm going to give you a couple of things as they're coming up. A calling is a call to servanthood that may lead to great things. It may lead to supernatural outpouring, or it may just lead to great glory for God in the midst of what some on the outside would look at and say, that's just average, that's mundane. Here's the thing, you're answering him. And if we're ever going to be good servants, here's some things that Elisha did that we need to do. First of all, Elisha never bargained. It was not about what he could get out of the call. He just received the mantle and said yes. Elisha recognized the immense privilege in being allowed any part of God's plan. Think about this, friends. Whether you were at the front door this morning or you were changing diapers, whether you're in the intercessory prayer room or playing bass guitar, whether you're working in the production team on cameras or whether you are the person who is um, uh, ushering people and taking up the offering, whatever it is in this house, how privileged you are to have a part of God's plan for this generation. Whether you're going overseas or you're working in a parachurch organization, or whether you're taking care of the sick or the infirm or the forgotten or the feeble, how privileged you are to have any part in God's plan in this season. 
Whether you're able to write a check for $2 and it hurts you to do that, or if you're writing a check for $20,000 and it hurts you to do that, whether it's two or 20,000, how privileged you are that God will take what you release and do something great in the kingdom. Whether you are gifted in prophetic utterance and words of knowledge, words of wisdom, tongues and the interpretation of tongues, laying on of hands, healing the sick, raising the dead, and all of those things that our hearts yearn to see, whether you're doing that or whether you're by yourself on Monday morning with a quiet song playing and you're calling out to Abba Father because you want to see revival in the land and you want to see healing in the land. You're not doing those things, but you're calling out for those things. How privileged you are to have a part in God's program and plan for the season. See, friends, in that sense, God's calling us all to enter into something. Whatever you're doing today, if the enemies walked up to you and whispered, it's fruitless, it's tedious, it's ignored, it doesn't have any oil on it, and he's telling you, just give it up. You fight back in this moment, you say, my father called me to this position. My father called me to this place. It may, may not make sense to a hundred people around me, and devil, you may try to talk me out of it, but the last thing the father told me to do is what I'm doing right now, and I am rejoicing that I have a part in his plan. That's what we call gratitude, and gratitude is the gateway for the anointing that is coming. Would you stand to your feet with me this morning? I'm going to just be real specific this morning. You can come forward and pray for whatever you want to pray for this morning. This, this area is open for you to kneel down front. We're going to have a few people up here in a few minutes. Matter of fact, y'all can come on up, ministry team, um, and you can pray with them. But I, I specifically just want to go for those that are um, resonating with this issue of a call. I know you're here. <laughs> I want you to come forward this morning. I want you to boil your oxen and burn your plow. I want you to answer the call unto him. I want you to lay down on the altar. The Bible says that Elisha sacrificed those oxen. He just didn't kill them. He sacrificed them to the Lord. It was intentional and directional. I want you to lay down your need for details on the altar of faith and just let the fire of sovereignty consume your addiction to having to know everything that's about to happen. Repent of having to know all the details. Trust is better than explanation. So, Father, I'm asking you now to move. Holy Spirit, your word says that there is a gift of faith. The gift of faith. Activate it right now, I pray. Activate the gift of faith in those who need it. We bind all fear by the authority of Jesus Christ. Every lie, doubt, and accusation of the enemy is bound up. We plead the blood of Jesus against it. And so, Father, your voice is sovereign in this room at this hour. Speak to your children. Call them, Lord, the willing the unknown, the obedient, the ones who will serve. Begin today what you began in Elisha's life so long ago. Lay your mantle upon the willing. In Jesus' name, amen.